Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers to help become better educated patients so we can receive better care and so we can help support new discoveries by joining clinical trials. If you'd like to receive a weekly email about past and upcoming interviews, you can subscribe to our Mpatient Minute newsletter on the homepage or follow us there on Facebook or Twitter. We also have new Facebook groups that we've created by Myeloma Subtype. Now, some of these include gene translocations or other gene deletions or additions, and if you don't know your disease biology, you should call your doctor today to find out. Then join one or many of the groups and post information about certain subtypes if you have it. Now, at the end of the call, we'll open it up for caller questions, and you can feel free to ask your question by pressing 1 on your keypad if you are calling in by phone. Now, today we are very fortunate to have with us Dr. Parmeshwan Hari of the Medical College of Wisconsin, who has some of the very highest survival statistics for myeloma treatment. We will find out what he's doing to achieve such stellar results and learn about his area of research, which includes trans- transplantation, specifically allogeneic transplants. So welcome, Dr. Hari. Um, thank you, and um, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, I would love to give an introduction for you, if that's all right. Sure. Um, Dr. Hardy is the Armand J. Quick William F. Stapp Professor of Hematology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He serves as the Director of the Adult Blood and Bone and Marrow Transplant Program at Frederick Hospital. He's the Section Head, Hematologic Malignancies and Transplantation, in the Division of Hematology and Oncology in the Department of Medicine. After medical school in India, he completed training in internal medicine, and hematology at premier institutions in the United Kingdom, and then in medical oncology and transplantation at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Hardy is board certified by the Royal College of Physicians in Internal Medicine, the Royal College of Pathologists in Clinical Laboratory Hematology, and holds membership in the American Society of Hematology. His primary interests are clinical interests, are in allogeneic transplants, plasma cell disorders, including multiple myeloma, amyloidosis, and other monoclonal gammopathies. Dr. Hardy is also the scientific director of the plasma cell disorders and lymphoma working committees of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research. So that's a lot to cover, and and I know, um, (laughs) well, thank you very much for dedicating your work to supporting and helping myeloma patients. We're all benefiting because of what you're doing. So let's start out with your specialty. Let's start out with allogeneic transplants or donor transplants and kind of cover um, the, maybe the who, what, why, where, and how of those types of transplants, and then we can continue to go on with other, other types. So I guess let's start with who. Um, when you look at allogeneic transplants, what profile of person are you looking at for that type of therapy? So uh, let me start by saying that allogenic transplant is not for everyone with myeloma. It's actually a very minority, a small minority of patients with myeloma who should even think about it. Okay. So um, uh, it's, it, it is potentially curative in myeloma, and that's uh, uh, even without uh, using any of the new drugs. We have data from old studies. We, have a, we had a U.S. intergroup study uh, from um, the mid-90s, which was a study that compared conventional chemotherapy in those days, you know, without even thalidomide or revlimid or uh, Velcade. Um, so old-fashioned chemotherapy versus auto-transplantation versus allotransplantation. And in those, in those days, allotransplantation or donor transplantation was uh, uh, quite unsafe, uh, and it was done with the um, heavy-duty chemotherapy, so we call it the conventional allotransplant, and it was quite unsafe. The, studies, the study had to be stopped. So the allotransplant arm of that study had to be stopped. However, the people who did well with the allotransplant and survived the allotransplant itself had, a, um, had essentially um, very minimal relapse after that. So it, it turned out that um, after many, many years of follow-up, we still see that people who had an allotransplant in the old-fashioned way um, have a very low risk of relapse. So in that study is kind of an um, early sign that 
um, allotransplantation works, and when, but when it when it can be done safely. So that's why uh, it, there is still some interest in allotransplant. Now, subsequently, studies have gone either way, and we have changed the way we do it. We have made allotransplantation safer by reducing the amount of chemotherapy and uh, changing the immunosuppression. Many many techniques. We can go into that in a bit, but. Um, uh, in, in answer to your question, who needs it? It is generally the younger patient, generally the patients who have high-risk myeloma where the risk of relapse is very high, uh, or people who have already relapsed one time. So, you know, say, for example, you had conventional chemotherapy, conventional therapy with three, three modern drugs, auto-transplantation maintenance, and you still relapse within the first one or two years. There, is still, there are still patients like that. In that setting, you know, uh, it means that after relapse, uh, the chance of a subsequent relapse is very, very high, and you should think about a more aggressive option such as an allotransplant. And finally, there are patients with primary plasma cell leukemia where the uh, disease itself is of very high intensity and um, aggressiveness. Um, you should really be considering allogenic transplantation as an option in those patients too. So younger patients with these kind of profiles, yeah. And so when you talk about younger patients, what high-risk profile are you looking at for? And this is before any other therapies, correct? Right. Kind so of right, right off about, the bat. Uh-huh. Yeah. High, so high-risk profile, younger patient. You know, I have patients who are in their 20s who get diagnosed with myeloma. And I don't think any, any, any of us would, you know, so when you're 20 and you have high-risk myeloma, you're looking at an average survival, which, you know, shortens your life by a substantial amount of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and being young, they have an advantage in that allotransplantation is relatively more safe in the younger patient. Um, essentially, uh, the transplant-related mortality or you know, the, uh, the um, fatalities we induce by our treatment are exceptionally low in young patients. Nowadays, most, of, most experienced centers would quote a transplant-related mortality rate of 5% or less for a young patient in their 20s or 30s um, when, when they have a, you know, either a matched sibling donor or a matched unrelated donor. Um, and uh, in those patients with young age and with high-risk features such as, you know, 17P deletion, uh, chromosome 1 amplification, um, 1416 uh, translocation, in addition to other features such as um, high beta-2 microglobulin. So, you know, if you have a stage 3 interstitial stage disease with high-risk chromosomes, that generally predicts for a high-risk disease. And some of these patients are even called ultra-high-risk disease, you know, people who have highly proliferative disease with abnormal uh, chromosomes, which mark for high-risk genes, and also high-stage. So those patients have been sometimes termed ultra-high-risk disease, and ultra-high-risk disease is an indication in the young patient to consider this option. And did you say 1416 translocation, or did you say 414? Oh, I didn't know that that was a high-risk, 1416. Oh, because we have a group, a Facebook group, and someone on that group was just asking that question, is this high risk um, or not? So now we know the answer to that. Right. Okay. And so for, okay, well, let's go on to talk about the how to go about the transplant. And I guess you could cover the entire process. How does somebody go about finding a donor? Um, at what point in time do they do they find the donor? And then how do they... How do they go through that process? So, um, so first of all, you know, so if you have one of these abnormalities, so the first first thing I would um, you know advocate to all patients is to actually know your risk profile. So, if you know your risk profile and your um, you know if you're a young age person, you should think about this as an option. Um, and also, you know, I, I didn't I, I forgot to mention the um, more modern tests like the uh, you know genomic profiling tests. So there is the uh, personal risk score with genomic profiling that is modeled after the Arkansas data, and there is a, a, another European way of doing it. So there is, you know, these are genomic profiling tests, uh, and that sometimes your doctor may have done it, and they also sometimes indicate resistance to agents such as bortezomib. So if you if you have a higher genomic risk score, sometimes it can indicate that you know you proteasome inhibitors such as Velcade or Kyprolis are not going to work for you very well, which you know, essentially takes takes you into a high risk group because you know this is probably on the platform on which most of our therapies are built. So you know the primary stone of that platform is not working. So that means that you're not going to benefit as much from our modern therapy. So in that case, you would try to think about an allotransplant. Allotransplantation works by being an immune therapy. 
So basically, the disparity between the immune uh, cells of the donor and your own myeloma cells makes the donor's immune system able to detect um, the uh, plasma cells that are growing in the patient's body and fight them off or kill them off. Now, how do you go about doing it? Once you are identified as a candidate by yourself or your doctor, you have to have a consultation with a transplant specialist, and they um, do what is known as tissue typing or HLA typing. HLA stands for human leukocyte antigen. Basically, these are some proteins on the surface of the white blood cells of the body, and these uh, proteins, they're essentially present on almost all cells of the body, and uh, the, the protein profile on the HLA um, of your body should match with that of the donor, and then only you can have that, that person can donate for you. Otherwise, there's immune complications, uh, which could involve either rejecting your transplant or the transplant cells attacking your body, which is a condition called graft-versus-host disease. So in order to avoid both of those situations, you need to have a matched, HLA-matched donor. You know, we call it tissue-matched mm -hmm. donor. So this HLA typing is a, in a very simple test. Almost all hospitals do it. Um, you basically have to have a sample of blood drawn or a cheek swab, you know, something which has your DNA, and you can do the HLA test off of that. And then if you have siblings, each sibling has a one in four chance of being matched to uh, another sibling. So if you have, say, several siblings, it's quite likely that you might find a match within your family. If you don't have a sibling, um, the option is to go and look for an unrelated donor. So there is something called the National Marrow Donor Program, nowadays known as Be the Match Registry. So Be the Match stand, you know, stand, uh, have typed about 12 million individuals of, uh, who are in their database with known HLA typing, and you can search your HLA type against those, in the, those people in the registry. And if you, if you find a close enough match, the person will be contacted and uh, the person's blood comes to the transplant center and they test for your blood versus their blood. And uh, most Caucasian individuals have a 90% chance of finding someone close enough in the, in the registry. So those are the two primary ways of doing this. Now, um, I get this question always, you know, can a parent be the match? Can, a, can a, um, a child be a match? Can a cousin be a match? Can a neighbor be a match? All those things. So uh, a parent is only a half match to their child, typically. Um, and a similar, same thing for, you know, your child versus you. So a child or a parent can only be 50% matched. Now, we do 50% match transplants in some situations, uh, but that's not the first line of uh, um, donor search. Um, uh, to find someone who, from your neighborhood or from your friend's group that's matched to you, that's actually very, very long odds. Uh, would not bet on that. You're much more likely to find it in the NMDP uh, Be the Match registry. Um, so this is all happening in the background when you're getting your, prime, you know, your treatment for the myeloma, and once you get into a good remission, that's the time to consider an allogeneic transplant or a donor transplant. Okay. Well, if you don't mind, let's go back to testing for a minute because yes. um, I want to help educate patients about the types of testing. Normally, I know when someone goes in, most facilities will do the FISH test, which might give you some of the translocations and some of the genetic profiles, but you were talking about a more detailed genetic expression profile test, correct? Yeah. Yeah, because I would say the most, of, I would say 90% of the patients that I talk to have no idea what their disease biology is. So I think that point you're making is really, really critical. And um, in lots of instances, I've said, call your doctor. Just call them today. Talk to the research nurse or your coordinator or um, whoever you need to that, to help you look through your chart and find out if that type of testing has been done. And I have a curious question. When you say a high-risk score may identify you being Velcade resistant, Tell me more about that. What are you looking for in that profile to, to see if you're Velcade resistant or not? So um, this is uh, basically gene expression testing. So the most common gene expression test in the U.S. is called uh, MyPRS. So it stands for uh, My Personal Risk Score. Um, it, is a, uh, it, it is a test done by um, this company called uh, Signal Genetics, uh, and Signal Genetics is a, um, I think it's a, 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 their test is based on um, the um, data that came from Dr. Barlagi's group at Arkansas. Um, so what happens is they, they need plasma cells from the individual at diagnosis or even at relapse. So whenever you have a bone marrow biopsy, and if you have about 30% plasma cells in the 
in the bone marrow, you can have that test. Um, so the, the, the exact type of test is called a microarray-based uh, gene, gene expression profiling. So there are genes in, the, um, in, in every cell in our body. Some genes are turned on or they are working. Uh, it's just like the lights in your house. If you have, you know, 100 lights, light bulbs in your house, not all of them are working at any one time. If they're all off, you can say that everybody in the house is probably sleeping or away. If they're on in the living room, they can say that you can say that they're probably in the living room either chatting or watching TV or whatever. So similarly, by looking at the which genes are turned on in a myeloma cell um, and which genes are turned off, you can say whether, how this myeloma cell is going to behave. And uh, the microarrays detect which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. Um, and it gives basically dynamic information um, regardless of the proliferation rate and other things that are in cytogenetics. To do conventional cytogenetics, the cells need to divide. If they don't divide, you won't get conventional karyotyping. Um, for fish, the problem is you, you, you put a limited number of probes on the myeloma cells. So if, you, if, you, if your doctor doesn't order the correct fish test, you may only get checked for, say, 17P. So you wouldn't know if you had, say, 1420 or 1416 or chromosome 1 amplification, some of the other things that are a high risk. So um, each for fish is limited by the amount, number of probes you, can, you have and the number of probes that are ordered. So gene expression is a more comprehensive test. However, um, gene expression has been validated um, in, in a big fashion only at the, with the Arkansas data. It has not really gotten out in the community and been tested in, in a multi-center setting. That those, tests are actually, those studies are actually underway right now. Um, uh, it is an expensive test. Some insurance don't cover it. You can only test for it when, you're, when you have active myeloma and active plasma cells because you need the plasma cells to do the test. And it basically gives you... Um, uh, uh, they look at about 70 myeloma-related genes, and they give you a risk score. And the risk score predicts for how aggressive your myeloma is. Um, and this is, uh, that's how it works. Hmm. And which part of that is telling you if you're VLK resistant? Just the ultimate score that you get, or is there something no, they specific on that test? Resist- they actually can predict uh, VLK resistance from the uh, MyTRS score. They actually, you know, in their test result, they tell you if this patient is likely to be VLK resistant or not. Oh, wow, I had no idea. Now, I was talking to my doctor about that and asking, because in some of the interviews we've been doing, I know some researchers are holding maybe BRAF mutation studies or um, MEK studies. And so I, said, I asked him, does the gene expression profile show those mutations? He said, no, you have to do the deep gene sequencing. But I didn't learn more about that. Are you doing the deep gene sequencing now too? or? Okay. Do you think that deep gene... sequencing at this time is uh, essentially um, um, only done as a, a research test? We don't uh, have a commercial test, so most for most patients it won't. Um, it, it really cannot uh, be done. You, know, you can't do it as a commercial test. Even gene expression profiling, you know, there are um, issues where, where insurance companies don't pay for it, etc. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, many many. Um, insurances do pay for it, and this company is actually very good with um, waiving costs when insurance doesn't pay. So I've really not had any patient actually had to pay for it out of pocket so far. And how much is the test? How much does it cost? Uh I think it costs around $2,000. Okay. It is covered by Medicare. Uh, That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. So for Medicare. Yeah, and most myeloma patients are actually on Medicare. Okay, well, maybe you want to talk about now what the process is of the um, aloe transplant. If you could kind of walk us through the steps of how, how it works. So um, once you find an uh, appropriate donor, you would uh, go ahead and decide with your doctor whether aloe transplant is right for you. So there are two ways of doing it. Um, one is um, in a planned fashion after an auto-transplant. So if a person has not established a complete remission or a deep remission after their initial induction therapy, there is some thought to doing it in a, as a double transplant technology. So basically you have an autologous transplant with your own cells first time, uh, which takes you to a deeper level of remission, and then you follow it up with a um, reduced-intensity allogenic transplant. It's not the old-fashioned heavy-duty chemotherapy, but reduced-intensity chemotherapy. Some people call those mini-transplants, which, which are not quite the same, but um, it's, it's, it's basically a tandem approach 
a double transplant approach, one with your own cells, one with the donor cells, and the two transplants are usually separated by about three to six months. Um, and so first of all, you would collect your own cells and go through your auto-transplant the normal way, uh, which is, you know, you get high-dose melphalan as your chemotherapy, then you get your stem cells infused a day or two later, and then you wait for those stem cells to grow, and you recover in about two and a half, three weeks. You get out of hospital, or if you're not even admit, sometimes, you know, some centers like ours, we don't admit patients all the time. Sometimes we do it entirely as an outpatient. And then um, uh, about the next two or three months, you recover and you get back to your usual state of health, and then you decide whether you want to go ahead and do the second part of the plant procedure, which is the allogenic transplant. So for that, um, you get chemotherapy. And uh, for us, the common form of chemotherapy that we use before transplant is a combination of two drugs. One is called flodarabine, which is an immune suppressive drug. And the other is melphalan, which is the, you know, the drug, same drug that mm -hmm. we use for an autotransplant. So you get a combination of both flodarabine and melphalan. And then uh, that goes over the, so the melphalan is one day, fludarabine is up to four to five days. Um, and after that, you get your um, donor cells infused. The donor collects cells the same way you collected them uh, for yourself, basically get GCSF injections and then get put on the plasma uh, phoresis, leukophoresis machine and then get your um, uh, cells collected. So the donor cells come in typically fresh. They get collected in the morning or afternoon and you get it later in the day. Um, and you have to take immune suppression medications to prevent rejection and also to prevent uh, graft-versus-host disease. So basically, mm. if your body doesn't like the donor cells, uh, that's rejection. You just reject the donor cells. That's very rare in uh, um, bone marrow transplantation or stem cell transplantation, but can happen. Um, the other form of uh, immune incompatibility is called graft-versus-host disease. So that's where... You, the donor cells just don't like the fact that they're in your body. So they detect that they're in a foreign person's body and they attack uh, the person. So this attack leads to uh, what is called graft-versus-host disease. So basically, it can attack your skin, uh, attack your um, gut, liver, essentially any organ in your body. Um, and the acute form of it is, uh, the, the more serious form of it is called acute graft-versus-host disease. It happens within the first 100 days after transplant, typically, um, and it can sometimes lead to death. That is really the most uh, fearful complication of a donor transplant. Uh, this later complication is a more indolent form, you know, more slow-growing form of uh, graft-versus-host disease. It's called chronic GVHD, and chronic GVHD is, majority of time, more of a nuisance than a life-threatening illness, but it can also be life-threatening at some point, sometimes. Um, turns out that this disparity between the donor and the recipient is also what helps myeloma uh, uh, get controlled. So if you have a little bit of disparity between the donor and the recipient, that makes the donor cells uh, fight the myeloma cells. And that is what prevents relapse in this setting. So, so that all might be all, like a double-edged yeah. sword, sort of, a little bit? It is bit? a double-edged sword. Yeah, GVHD is a double-edged sword. Um, if we looked at, you know, so we've looked at our own uh, data from hundreds of uh, transplants, um, and it uh, turns out that acute graft-versus-host disease, with the more life-threatening form of it, which happens in the first 100 days after transplant, that is more, of a dam more damaging than helpful, uh, and it is more risky to life. Um, however, a little bit of chronic graft-versus-host disease does prevent relapse, and uh, both our group in the, from the CIBMTR and the European Bone Marrow Transplant Group, uh, EBMT, have both shown that with chronic graft-versus-host disease, you do get an anti-myeloma effect. So, um, uh, we, we, you know, we, it's not like we, we wish GVHD to happen, but, you know, a little bit of GVHD is not necessarily bad. Wow, well, that's if it can be really yeah. Yeah, interesting to know. I have a friend who's preparing for one and is going through the whole matching process and and, um, you know, he's, he found a donor that was 9 out of 10, but they said, no, you really need a 10 out of 10. I don't really know what those numbers mean, but um, um, maybe you yeah, can explain that. Yeah, I can that. explain that in a second, yeah. So um, uh, when we look, for, you know, I remember I told you about the HLA uh, typing, tissue typing. Uh -huh. So we look at HLA proteins on the person's cells, and we look at the HLA protein on the, the, the potential donor cells. So if we look at 10, you know, we look at five sites in the, in the cell, and each site there is two proteins, so basically ten. Um, so you know, it's like looking at you know five you know A B C D E, 
and in there is A1, A2, B1, B2, like that. So there is two two places in each each of those five sites. So if all five sites, both places in each site are all matched, then you're a 10 out of 10 match. And if one of the places the protein is different between uh, the recipient and the donor, then you're only 9 out of 10 matched. Um, some centers will insist on having a 10 out of 10 match. Some centers might go with a 9 out of 10 match. Um, uh, so it's a little bit uh, variable. And some centers only look at um, eight places or like four places with two sites in each place. So eight, in some, you know, like our center, we look at eight places. And there, there is enough data to suggest that, you know, you only need to look at eight um, antigens. So do those numbers correlate with what you're talking about with, with um, graft versus host? Your so risk you're of graft versus, yeah, it goes mm -hmm. up. The more disparity there is, the risk of graft versus host disease goes up. So if you have a you know mismatched donor in several sites, so if you look at a seven out of ten donor, we don't do we don't use those donors because the risk of graft versus host disease is very high. Um, whereas uh, eight, ten out of ten and nine out of ten, the the uh, the increase in graft versus host disease is only minimally high, so we might go with it. Hmm. And um, a question, I guess I. Uh, just about finding a donor, how long does it usually take to find a matching donor? So um, if it's a sibling, usually the process is very quick because you can call your sibling right. and say, hey, go and get, get yourself tested. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas uh, if it's an unrelated donor, um, it, it could take anywhere from six weeks to um, 12 weeks for 16 weeks. And you know, generally, if you're an ethnic minority, um, there are less people like yourself in the, in the registry, so it takes a little longer. Uh, and sometimes you may not find a donor um, uh, even after a worldwide search because most of the donors that are in the registry are actually either U.S. or Caucasian uh, from Western Europe. Uh, so uh, there is a little bit of a disparity there based on your minority status. You know, African Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans, uh, we all find it very difficult to get donors all, uh, through the NMDP. Now, I know that... Um a lot has been done to improve the safety of the allo transplant. Can you talk about what you are what you're using in the most the best and latest technology to reduce the risks? Sure. So, um, like I said to you, um, you know, when we did the U.S. intergroup study in the mid '90s, the allo transplant arm had to be closed down uh, because the 30-day mortality, the, you know, the mortality within the first month was as high as about 40%. Now, nobody would do a procedure like that anymore. Um, essentially, for all types of allotransplants, things have become much safer within the last few years. Uh, the biggest change that has happened is uh, changes in immune suppression, changes in antibiotic use, changes in sterility practices, lowering the rates of infection, etc. So nowadays we do allotransplants for other, you know, even myeloma or, and other diseases all the way up to age 70. In fact, there are a lot of people above the age of 70 who are having allotransplant for diseases like uh, leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, etc. Um, so allotransplants in general have become dramatically safer. Number two, myeloma patients are actually going to transplant in a much safer condition than they used to before. Uh, in the olden days, we, the, every treatment was predicated on giving chemotherapy and high, high doses of steroids, you know, essentially dexamethasone at 40 milligrams, four days on, four days off, which would involve like 160 milligrams of dexamethasone every week. So that mm. has gone away. Conventional chemotherapy has gone away. So myeloma patients are actually getting to transplant, whether auto or allo, they're getting to transplant in a much safer situation. So they're not more, you know, what, what do I say, um, not as beat up as they used to be. So they're able to tolerate the transplant better. Thirdly, the technology of doing transplant has changed. We used to give people heavy doses of radiation or chemotherapy. We call that myeloablative transplant. It stands for you know, destroying the marrow type of transplant. So you essentially destroy the um, recipient's marrow, and then you put the uh, donor's cells or marrow in. Uh, now, uh, we don't necessarily have to do it. We've di figured out that just depleting the immune system is all that you need to do. In fact, uh, the major allotransplant trial in myeloma that was done in the U.S. was done with a single dose of radiation. So essentially, the patient had one dose of radiation in the morning of the transplant, you know, such a small dose of radiation that you wouldn't even know if you got it. 
uh, uh, you know, essentially your, your hair doesn't fall out, you're, you don't get any uh, mouth sores, you don't get anything, you could get discharged the next day. So that's, we call it, um, you know, two grades of radiation, just uh, one dose of radiation in the morning, all, you know, to suppress your immune system, and then you get the cells from the donor in the evening, and uh, you stay on immune suppression medications for the next few months. That's how we did it. That's called a non-myeloblative transplant or a, a, a mini transplant. So many people um, like doing it that way. But what turned out was that um, many many groups looked at the mini transplants with the older way of doing transplant with heavy-duty chemo. Turns out that if you do mini transplants, you do get that immune effect against myeloma, but you don't get enough myeloma control from the chemo itself because you're not getting uh-huh. any chemo, giving any chemo. You're not doing enough radiation. So then, you know, the pendulum started to swing the other way. But it has not gone all the way back. It is kind of right in the middle now. We call it reduced-intensity transplant. So it is not as light as the mini, but it is not as heavy as the um, fully ablative transplant. So it's right in the middle. It's called reduced-intensity. And the most common regimen right now that's being used across this country is a combination of two drugs, fludarabine and malphalan. Uh, and here you would definitely lose your hair. You would feel some mouth sores and all that. And it is about as intense as going through a auto transplant or a little bit less intense than that. Uh, so in fact, in, I, yeah, we, we actually do this out, as outpatient. Uh, if the patient, is, uh, patient lives within an hour of us, we do it, the whole thing as an outpatient. Oh, well, I did an outpatient transplant, and I just love doing it outpatient. And I think it's psychologically easier. Oh, much better. Yeah, <laughs> I was just looking at our infection rates over the last, uh, for 2013. In the outpatient transplant, we had 5% infection rates. Uh, during the first month of transplant. So it's like, you know, so that's just amazing. And in, in hospitals, I think, you know, you're, the number of people coming in, in and out of your room, the number of doctors seeing you, all that's much higher in the hospital. And uh, like oh. I tell my patients, the bugs in your own house, they know you and they won't attack you. But the bugs in the hospital, they don't know you and they're, they're, you're a folder for them. Yeah. Well, I guess um, you were saying you're trying to reduce enough of the tumor burden. That's the overall goal, right? Reduce enough of the tumor burden to be effective to kill the cells and then give the new cells. So when you're talking about the – so sorry to interrupt you for the reduced intensity, but maybe you could keep describing that. Yeah, I can expand on that a little bit, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the, the, the goal of uh, transplant is to really do, uh, I love transplants to do two things. One is to have as little tumor burden in the patient as possible – after transplant. Second goal is to have a change in their immune system. So essentially, if you have myeloma, it means that your own immune system is not very good at sniffing out the myeloma. If you have a new immune system from a donor that is uh, generally compatible with you, but slightly incompatible, you know, even if, unless you are an identical twin, nobody else has the same exact immune system as you. And even your sibling, fully matched sibling, there are minor incompatibilities that we don't care about. So those uh, incompatibilities result in the donor's immune cells having an anti-myeloma effect. We call that graft versus tumor effect or graft versus myeloma effect. And um, there are several lines of evidence. You know, we, we can actually test that in mice. We can do that in um, – uh, we can give immune cells after transplant, and that controls the myeloma in people who relapse after donor transplant. So there are many ways of figuring it out, figuring out if such an effect exists. And it has been proven time and again that there is a graft versus myeloma effect and my immune cells can attack myeloma cells. That has been proven. The only way, the only barrier is to use it successfully so that we don't um, result in harm to the patient doing the transplant and we also have enough immune, enough, um, uh, immune effect to prevent a future relapse. So you want to reduce the tumor burden as li- to as minimal as possible so that the immune, immune system has less work to do. Hmm. Okay, and when you think about doing either the auto-transplant first and then a mini-allo-transplant or this reduced-intensity um, allo-transplant, how do you make the decision um, for your patients so, about which option is best for them? So um, uh, let me um, tell you what I do in practice myself. Uh, I, I generally, if, if a patient is in a really good, stringent, complete remission, um, after their induction treatment and they're in a uh, you know, really good place, I sometimes just go straight to a fludarabine melphalan uh, reduced-intensity allogenic transplant, but that's a minority. Uh, for most of my patients, after induction, they have either a complete remission with a few cells detectable by flow cytometry or they're on a very good partial remission 
uh, etc. So for those patients, I do an auto-transplant to further reduce the tumor burden and then come in and do the uh, allotransplant. So that, would, that, I would say, is 90% of what I do in practice. There are other patients where I wouldn't even consider doing just an allo up front. Those are patients with, like, primary plasma cell leukemia and things like that, where the disease is very aggressive, and I always worry about subclinical disease, you know, the disease which we cannot detect by our tests, but that may be percent. So the goal, goal is to do the auto first to actually kill as much disease as possible and then soon thereafter come in and do the allo transplant. So most of our patients up front, we are doing that. At relapse, um, you know, again, you can, uh, most, most people would actually do several cycles of induction, uh, re-induction treatment at relapse and get them to a, a deep remission and then do the allo st- uh, straight up. So for relapse patients, do you ever do an auto and then an allo with relapse patients or no? Just try to reduce um, it as much as possible. Yes, uh, try to reduce it as much as possible and then do the allo. So most of the time I have done in the relapse patients uh, allo um, after a tumor bulk reduction. Hmm. And there are some insurance issues around it too. It's very difficult to get tandem transplants approved uh, at the relapse setting. So generally, you know, uh, but I have to say that insurance companies have generally been okay with allo transplant once a patient has relapsed. We do get a push, we get, get pushback from insurance companies because the studies have gone either way. So um, if you do think about the auto followed by allo studies, uh, there was a study from um, Italy published by Dr. Bruno. Um, that was a study of double auto versus one auto followed by allo uh, with the mini allo. Uh, that was published uh, around 2006, I think. And that showed that the people who got uh, auto followed by allo survived longer than the people who got double auto. Uh, so that was a smaller study although it was a high-profile publication. Um, and then uh, we had a um, U.S. study, which was the large U.S. study of uh, almost 700 patients. Uh, this was called the BMTCTN0102 study, um, which is, uh, stands for the Bone Mar- Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network. This study um, was um, published in Lancet Oncology, and that sh- uh, showed that there was no difference between double auto and auto followed by mini al. So those, that was a negative study for um, mini allo. It, it, it wasn't as if the patients who got mini allo did poorly. It is that they didn't do any better than the people who got double auto. Um, the criticism for this study is that uh, this follow-up has not been long enough. So we are actually seeking to update that study within the next few months, and we, there will be a follow-on publication to that, um, looking at long-term effects for the uh, allo. Because the benefits of allo, most people think, are in the long-term disease control, not in the short term. Uh, the third study is a very, very long study uh, with very long follow-up coming from the European group. It's called the EBMT-NMAM 2000 study, uh, and the follow-up is up to eight years now. And that has been published twice, once in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and one in blood. And both times it was shown that the people who got uh, auto followed by allo lived longer than the people who got double auto. So there was a survival advantage. Um, in addition, it was shown that people who got the allo, when they relapsed, they had a better survival after relapse. Uh, this is what, something that I seem to be seeing in my own practice, too, um, because I think people who got an, get, get the allo, they, they generally are younger, so that may be just the effect of age, but it's also that they have other options. They have the option of what we call donor lymphocyte infusion or immune therapy strategies after um, uh, relapse when, you have, uh, when you've had an allo platform in your body. Oh, and I hope we're going to talk about that later because I want to talk to you about your your studies. Um, sure. Okay. Is and the Italy study? How long of data did they have? Uh, so they have also published twice. Their second uh, publication was by Dr. Giacconi as first author, and I think in that they had almost seven years of follow up. And the U.S. study had how long of follow up? Because you said it wasn't uh, long enough. Yeah, it wasn't. It was only about two and a half years, so three years of follow-up when, when the U.S. study oh. was published. Yeah. And a follow-up question about these studies, because are are they able to subset the patients by risk type or maybe translocation type or genetic mutation type, and then determine who is it, who it's working for in a better way? Uh, that's a very very good question. Um, so. Uh, the U.S. study um, is the one where we had risk stratification. 
but it was in a you know this is these studies were designed in the early 2000s so you have to understand that you know we, our risk mm-hmm. stratification methodologies were not as good enough mm-hmm. so the US study used uh, only two markers uh, beta 2 microglobulin and the presence of chromosome 13 by uh, karyotyping which is chromosomal test you know when now most people yeah. would say that chromosomal th- chromosome 13 by uh, conventional karyotyping is not really a high-risk marker anymore, or uh, well, we do actually it was by fish or karyotyping. So some of the people who are karyotyped, uh, if you have it by conventional karyotype, it is a high-risk marker, but if you have it by fish, it's not really a high-risk marker. So this study had put both categories in the high risk, so that's one problem. The other problem is just a straight-up beta-2 microglobulin plus chromosome 13, none of the other newer markers. So mm-hmm. we... We do, do, you know, we did look at high risk versus low risk, and there was no benefit. But what we did see was that pre- people who got chronic GVHD had a benefit against relapse. So that was st- still shown in the U.S. study. So um, there is some benefit if you got chronic GVHD, but no overall benefit compared to double auto at three years. That's all we can say. And can they go backwards? Can you go backwards and look at all this data now that you know a little more, yeah. and or the you just don't have the data about what patients had or didn't have. It's almost impossible to get it. That's the prob. The problem is that mm-hmm. uh, you know the the upfront typing. That's so. That's why you know it's a, this is again a great question in a practical sense. In that, you know, if you if your your diagnosis of myeloma is usually made not at the transplant center, it's not even uh, possibly made at an academic center for the majority of patients. So if you if you, the only way to do it uh, to be, to establish the right risk stratification is to go to a you know major myeloma center and have a repeat bone marrow biopsy because you know if you haven't if you didn't have, get it done and you started on treatment and your plasma cells started disappearing we would never be even able to establish the diagnosis later on establish the risk scores later on so that, that happens to most of the patients so in the US study you know that they they got enrolled in the study 3 or 4 months after diagnosis when they went to the transplant center by that time the window had Past and we, it, mm. it's impossible to retrieve the bone marrows from various other referring centers and get, test them again. It's such a critical point, and the same thing happened to me. You know, I went to a general center, and he didn't even do a bone marrow biopsy, and said, "Okay, I think you have my lama. We're going to start you on Velcade on Friday." And wow. um, I, okay, I don't think that's such a great option. So I ended up no. going to an academic center that did all the testing, and I'm very grateful I did because now I can go back to it and be a little more specific about what I'm right. looking for. So I want to encourage yeah. other patients to do that as well. Yeah, myeloma is not a one disease. It's, much, it's many different diseases rolled into one. What we call myeloma now will be defined molecularly as different diseases in the future. You know, there are people with myeloma with very different survival profile. There are a lot of people who don't even need any transplant, perhaps. And there are people who need every, every aggressive step that we have right now. So how do you differentiate? The only way to differentiate is up front uh, with whatever tools we have. And these tools are getting better and better. So, and if you don't do it up front, you know, the chance may be lost. Well, that's really important information, so we're going to pass that around. <laughs> sure, so, yeah. Let, let's talk about your studies, because I know you have a, a study um, for allotransplant and using natural killer cell therapy, and so I want you to explain it, the list of drugs in this therapy or different approaches is really extensive, so you kind of need to go through, go through one by one, I guess, and kind of explain um, your research. Sure. Uh, so, um, you know, so we are actually, so let me talk about the uh, allotransplant studies that are in development right now, and I will talk a little bit about the NK cell study too. The NK cell okay. study is really not, um, you know, we, we haven't done too many myeloma patients on that, although we have a couple and they're doing fine. But uh, the, there is a national allo study that's being proposed and it's being worked on right now. Uh, through the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network, the BMTCTN, which is the group that did the previous uh, large U.S. study. Um, so the, this um, study is mainly for high-risk for high risk patients, so we kind of learned from our mistakes. We're not going to do it in low-risk patients, so you have to have high-risk myeloma up front, defined by what we talked about earlier, you know, the high-risk markers, high um, international staging system stage, high beta-2 microglobulin, etc., or primary plasma cell leukemia. And if you're upfront myeloma with all these high-risk markers, you have to get to a VGPR or better uh, with induction treatment, and then you can go on the study. And the study will use standard allotransplant with the fludarabine melphalan regimen, so it's not 
mini. It is not fully ablative. It's kind of in the middle. And after transplant, patients are going to get randomized to either um, um, uh, an agent called Ixazomib, which you might have heard about. It's an oral proteasome inhibitor, or um, observation. So basically, it is different things rolled into one. You know, for high-risk patients, it is a question of transplant followed by um, maintenance versus no maintenance because, you know, the proof of maintenance is not yet there in allotransplant. Um, another way you could get on this study is if you relapse early after a uh, autotransplant. We have not quite defined that study. is still in, in the works. We have not, you know, it's not yet approved by the National Cancer Institute or anything yet, and we hope it will get approved soon. But this is one of the national high-risk studies that hopefully will be online soon. And when you say soon, what do you, is that sometime uh, this year? Or within the next, yeah, this year, within the next uh, four to six months, hopefully. Um, it is, you know, there's a group of us who are actively um, um, trying to develop the study and um, get it online. Uh, there are also centers that do their own studies. Those, you know, I know of uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, they have a, national, uh, a study which is ongoing, but uh, hopefully all these centers will collaborate. And this is designed as a multi-center study. So essentially all the big transplant centers in the United States will have the study open. So patients with early relapse after an auto-transplant or patients with upfront very high-risk disease can go on the study. So, you know, that will be a good option for younger patients with ultra-high-risk disease and patients who have relapsed too soon after an auto-transplant. Nowadays, you know, if you, with modern induction, auto-transplant, followed by maintenance, people should be getting four to five years of disease control with that initial approach. Um, and if you don't get that, it is, it is, you know, time to think about more aggressive strategies. So that's the one study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to stress that, that this might be a really easy study to join for a patient with those criteria instead of just because all you're, you're doing the same things that you would in a normal standard of care. You're just trying to see Correct. if something is even more effective. Correct. So, okay. Absolutely. Um, and this, uh, the, sec- the, the about the haplo-NK study, that's a little bit of a, you know, uh, that's a phase one, uh, two study. Basically, we are trying to develop um, an approach by using... Um, 50% matched donors. So basically, you know, if you have a family member, that's 50% matched to you. That can be your parent, your child, or one of the brothers or sisters who are only half matched to you. So those are those patient, those type of donors are called haploidentical donors. You're half matched. That's mm-hmm. not the same as you know, if you had a random donor from unrelated to you who is 50% matched to you by chance. That is not a haplo donor. The haplo donor has to be a family member because there is a difference between being 50% matched from within your family versus from outside because with these proteins that we look for are inherited in the same fashion within the families. So the haploidentical donors are always family donors uh, related to you uh, that are uh, 50% matched to you. So your potential for getting it, almost everybody will have a haplodonor because you'll have either a brother or sister that's half-matched. The chance of having a haplo-sibling is about 50%. So, and then the parents, children, many people can be donors. So it, you know, in, in my practice, I do see a lot of ethnic minority patients, including African-Americans, who have a very low chance of getting uh, fully-matched donors from the registry. So this expands the options for those patients, too. Mm. The second uh, thing about haploidentical donors is that um, there is a system uh, outside of the HLA system. You know, we talked about the human leukocyte antigen system, which we look for tissue typing. There's another system called the KIR system, K-I-R. That stands for Killer Immunoglobulin Receptor System. So that's another part of your immune system that can detect um, and attack. Um, it helps cells detect and attack foreign proteins and foreign cells. So um, there is a particular immune cell in people's bodies called NK cells, natural killer cells. And um, NK cells use this mechanism, the cure mechanism, to detect and attack for unwanted cells. So it turns out that um, if you have a disparity in cure, which is favorable for the NK cells to detect cancer, uh, these haplotransplants become suddenly more effective. Uh, So we have used an approach where we actually have the patient's donors donate bone marrow first, and then we do a bone marrow transplant. After that, we have the donor come back, and we collect NK cells from their blood, and then we infuse the NK cells as a cellular treatment for, uh, to de- kill off more myeloma. 
So this NK cells have a property of preventing graft-versus-host disease and also killing cancer. So it's kind of like the holy grail of uh, uh, mm-hmm. transplantation. Uh, it is no, by no means a proven technology, so that's why it's in a study. And uh, there are several centers doing it. Uh, we happen to be one of the centers that have pioneered this approach uh, through one of my colleagues. So uh, we, our program uses this, and uh, we have transplanted myeloma patients with this technology. And I know some people have talked about um, allotransplant as the oldest immunotherapy treatment because you're but, really changing, you know, changing the immune system. But this is, sounds like it's combining that with the newer immunotherapy type treatments. Uh, very true. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So, the NK cell dose is, you know, no, you know, by no means we don't know the exact dose of NK cells we need to give, but all that we are going up stepwise in the number of cells, NK cells we are infusing in patients. It has been very well tolerated so far. We really, I'm very happy to report that we've had essentially. Um, no major complications in patients doing these kind of transplants and um, uh, no unexpected complications. Patients are tolerating this procedure very well and the transplant technology itself is um, going very well. Um, and what type it, the, of patient are you looking at for that study? For this study, uh, um, you know, the way the study is written and because it's experimental, right now I'm only looking at patients who, are, who don't have matched donors. So if you have a matched sibling, or a matched unrelated donor that can donate for you, then we we are not putting those patients on. Hopefully, in a few few more years, we you know we we could if this is very safe, then you know it would become reasonable to offer it to patients who are you know even who have a matched donor. And I and I have a feeling that we would be offering it in, at least in some situations to patients as the primary type of doing transplant, primary way of doing transplant, even if they have a matched donor. There are centers that do that actually, um, like Hopkins, where they prefer this approach. Hmm. And do you ever do that type of approach, like with a compassionate use kind of approach, just outside of a study, or or is that not um, done? Um, the, outside of a study, we cannot do the NK cells because that's regulated hmm. by the FDA because it's a cellular therapy and we have approval from the FDA to do it in a study only. Um, but um, uh, compassionate, you know, let me talk about compassionate use for, uh, you know, in the setting of multiply relapsed myeloma where a person's disease has come back several times and you're essentially resistant to many uh, drugs that are active in myeloma, um, allotransplant is probably not a great option. Um, it, it, you know, we sometimes do it when the patient is young, but generally the long-term survival is in the 20% range. Um, so if, if you have, so the time to think about allotransplant is actually early on in your disease course. So if you keep waiting for too long, to do an allotransplant, uh, the, the disease itself becomes so resistant that the immune effect is just not able to kill it off. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Okay, what other studies would you like to share with us? So um, there are a lot of, you know, I have to emphasize that there are a lot of new drugs coming out. And uh, the other high-risk study that is going to, uh, actually, that's already active now is the SWOG study with elotuzumab, which is a um, uh, antibody using um, against a protein called CS1 protein. So this is um, a study comparing the use of RVD regimen uh, versus RVD with elotuzumab. And this study is also a, a very reasonable study for a high-risk patient. In fact, if you did think about an allotransplant also, you could go on the study and then if, the, if that regimen does not control the disease, you could come back and have an allotransplant because the way our study will be uh, written is for patients, even at first relapse, you could go on the allotransplant arm. So I, I think since we have a lot of good options for myeloma, we left it open that patients who relapse also can go on, but not only first relapse. If you relapse more than one time, the allotransplant study will not take in patients. Well, that's an interesting approach. So that study is using, that's a monoclonal antibody, right? Elotuzumab. Yeah. And it's using Revlimid, Velcade, and Dex together? Yeah. So for, the RVD induction is yeah, for, for high-risk patients, RVD and plus ELO, yeah. And that's a non-transplant study. So what you're saying that is, is you can a, do that, that is, study and then come and do a transplant then, later. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, that's, it sounds yeah. like and there's then, so many yeah. different options. Absolutely, and I'm excited about the new classes of drugs that are being discovered. You know, we have uh, HDAC inhibitors that are seeming very promising. We have the kinase and spindle inhibitors like ARRY520, which is very promising. 
We also have the antibodies, the CD38 antibodies that are extremely promising. So we have a, a whole variety of techniques that are coming. Uh, you know, new classes of drugs. What we need is new classes of drugs because uh, myeloma, as we all know, is a, a disease that uses many pathways to bypass our drugs. So we have, if we block every pathway, then the, it can no longer bypass. So that's the thing. You know, the treatment, uh, escape of treatment, escape from treatment for the myeloma cell happens only because it does many different ways of getting out. So if you block every pathway, uh, then you would um, basically keep the cell suppressed forever. And that's, that's how it translates to a cure. Well, the, the discoveries are exciting. So Absolutely. it will be nice to see how they, they come out in your trials. And I think patients, the more we know about what kind of study might be right for us, the better off we're going to be. So I wanted to ask um, two final questions, I guess. So what is the secret to your survival success? <laughs> because you're getting very, very just exceptional results. Um, uh, the, so I have to thank my patients who are very compliant patients. They, um, they, they actually, you know, they're, I have a very, very, I'm lucky to work with my wonderful patients. Um, they are, they usually understand what we want to do. Um, they, um, you know, I think uh, my whole approach is that I don't, I'm not just here to do a transplant and, um, make them better for the short term. I, I always think of an overall strategy for the patient. If I see somebody who's 20 years with myeloma, you know, the youngest patient I have is 21 year old, and uh, you know, she got diagnosed with myeloma. And she's 21 years old. You know, so it's just, uh, it's just, you know, it, it, whatever I do now, the disease is going to respond. But how do I make this person go for a long, long, long time? You know, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, how how am I going to get the most out of life for this person? So the approach is not just how do I fix it now versus what strategies should I use to keep all the options available. So they need to have all the options available when they relapse they, when, uh, or try not to have a relapse at all. So I, the, my approach is generally to have enough stem cells in the freezer, uh, use transplant judiciously, um, use the best non-transplant regimens available, and have a lot of trial options for patients and preserve their general health. You know, if you preserve your bone health, preserve your renal health, um, all that, you, you can go on trials. You know, if your creatinine goes up, you know, many trials will exclude you. So you have to make sure that the rest of the person is also taken care of um, during times of remission. And you have to basically um, have as many options as possible for every patient uh, thing. So I'm just trying to, I try to think ahead so, so that I can have many, many options for my patients. That's, I think that's the only key I can say. And how and do you preserve? The, mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Preserving general health is very important. I think, you know, you know doing things like uh, making sure of the anti-venous um, um, thromboembolism prophylaxis, make sure that patients don't have all these unexpected um, blood clots, make sure that their kidney health is preserved, you know, give, educate them about, you know, contrast agents, uh, avoiding non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, using, improving their bone health using um, um, you know, uh, bisphosphonates, etc. So most pe- most people do that, but it's compliance, which is an issue in some some centers. You know, if you if you don't educate your patients well enough, they they just don't understand why they have to do all these things. You know, when you're in remission, it's very easy to think, and I'm in remission, I can just take it easy now. Yeah, and you like to to get out of the clinic as much as possible, even though we love you <laughs> and, and what you're doing for us. You're saving our lives, so we are so grateful. Um, my last question, before I open it up to caller questions, is um, clinical trial participation. The series is the goal is to encourage patients to join clinical trials. And if more patients join clinical trials, what would be the outcome for you and your research? Um, I think you know the, the one of the um, most uh, depressing aspects of medicine in the United States right now is that the num- clinical trial participation for cancer patients is depressingly low compared to Europe. And as you all know, um, the, um, in myeloma, most of the big studies are coming from Italy or France or other, other countries. And we have the best drugs being developed in this country, but the studies have to be done abroad. So I think we, that situation has to change. And I think the best thing a person can do when they are, um, uh, before they start on treatment is to ask their doctor, what sort of clinical trials are available for me? And if, I, if you don't have it, what's the closest place I can go and have a clinical trial. So, you know, there is some tedium involved in some clinical trials. There is more drug, blood draws, there is regulated visits. But there are, remember, there are a lot more pay, people looking at your results. 
It is usually done by a group of people. So, you know, like today I have two trial uh, investigator phone calls, conference calls, where we all discuss everybody's patients so that we are all sure that the next step in the trial can happen. So it's a lot more input that goes in. There is a research coordinator that's following you. There is all sorts of benefits for being in a clinical trial. So I, I wish more people would understand the benefits of being in a clinical trial. And, you know, and there is a lot of misconception around it, as you very well know, about you know, being, you know, and no treatment trial in cancer will just have a placebo. That is just not going to happen. Yeah, we've, we're trying to help demystify some of those myths because um, even all the, all the trials are excellent. And we've had nine new drugs in myeloma in the last 10 years. And I right. think and what can we do? Without, yeah, yeah, and what, what can we do if we even double the number of patients in clinical trials? Right. We'd have so many options. Absolutely. All right, well... Our time is running out, but I want to open it up for caller questions. So if you have any questions for Dr. about Dr. Hardy's research, you can call 347-637-2631, and once you are on the call, you can press 1 on your keypad. So our first caller. Oh, hi. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks for taking my call. Um, and uh, the... There's a part of the interview that just kind of rocked me, but it felt like you just kind of glossed over it. And when you said, "Yes, we're doing NK cell NK studies at our at our hospital, we're we're having um, um, you know great results," and then just kind of moved on. <laughs> right. Um, I, that is like as you said in the interview, the holy grail. Could you give us a little more detail on the N, the natural killer cell studies? Right. So um, uh, the the reason I glossed over a little bit uh, was because it is not applicable to most of the patients, right? Uh, it is. It is. So the NK cell uh, Im- immune therapy is being done by us as part of uh, a clinical trial, and it's only applicable if the patient got a haploidentical transplant. So which means a half match transplant from either their, uh, one of the family members that's half matched to them. Um, based uh, because the FDA has it, it's very strictly regulated by the FDA what we can do and what we cannot do. And K cells are really the holy grail of transplantation if they work the way we think they will work, because they lower the rates of graft versus host disease and they give disease control. So the problem with allogenic transplant or donor transplant is that whatever increases disease control always also increases graft versus host disease. So graft versus is a bad effect, and disease control is a good effect. So they kind of go hand in hand. So that's our problem. Um, if there is immune disparity, there is more graft versus host disease. If there is immune disparity, there is actually better protection against relapse. Um, so NK cells hopefully could address both of those at one stroke. The problem is that um, you can only go get a haplotransplant the way our trials are written if you don't have a matched donor um, uh, from either the family or just outside the family. So if you don't have an unrelated matched donor or a related matched donor, then you could get a haplotransplant. So right now it is limited access to most people. It, I'm hoping that it will become mainstream technology in the next couple of years, but at this time it's just experimental. It's phase one, two trials right now. Okay, so, it, so it's, it's not a pill you can take. It's not uh, an injection. It's part of a transplant process it is for a very a select, process. A yeah. select subset of okay absolutely is that is that a medical trial or is that just part of the program that you run no it is a trial it's a clinical trial it's an if you know it's a it has a you know national clinical trial number you know if you look at nk cell trials you find that all righty awesome thank you thank you okay we have one other caller at 636-1782 Let me get her or him on. Okay, um, go ahead, caller. Uh, thank you. Uh, doctor, once you develop graft versus host disease, uh, are, are your options pretty limited to, uh, for further treatment after that? Um, that's, uh, yeah, so let me explain that. So uh, it depends on how bad the graft versus host disease is. So a little bit of graft versus host disease is not necessarily bad, as I told you. Chronic graft-versus-host disease or the type of graft-versus-host disease that happens after about 100 days is uh, most of the time very easily fixable. Sometimes it is more of a nuisance rather than a a life-threatening illness, although exceptions do happen. 
the acute graft resistance disease, which is the form that happens right after transplant, within the first 100 days after transplant, is more serious and could be life-threatening if not controlled well. That's why most transplant centers will make you live near the transplant center for at least three months after, after transplant. But having said all that, the majority of people with graft-versus-host disease still are, um, get control of uh, GVHD and get better, and their options are fine afterwards. Uh, so irrespective of the type of transplant, even if you have a transplant for myeloma um, um, with a donor, the biggest risk to the patient is still myeloma relapsing, not graft-versus-host disease or infection or a transplant-related complication. Over time, we've whittled away the transplant-related complications to less than 10% uh, of, you know, as, as a cause of death. So the majority of patients who do poorly after transplant for myeloma do so because the myeloma relapsed not because of graft-versus-host disease. Oh, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, and we had a final write-in question, and it is from Irene, and she says, I have al- I'm not a patient, but I've always wanted to donate bone marrow for a transplant. How do I go about doing that? Oh, thank you, Irene, for uh, uh, having that thought. Actually, the best way to donate is, uh, so let's hope that nobody in your family needs it, and that's, uh, you know, we, we, we don't want anyone getting cancer and you have to donate. Actually, to help other people, the best way to join is to join the Be the Match registry. Um, and when, there are a lot of donor drives happening all over the um, country. Um, it usually is held in churches or, um, you know, temples or um, um, educational institutions where you can just go up and all they will, they will register, take your details, and then they will give you a cheek swab. You swab the inside of your cheek, put it in an envelope, give it to them, and that's it. You are in the database. And they will, keep, um, they will retain you by you know, sending you emails and keeping you um, live on the donor network. However, uh, there is an uh, age restriction. Uh, I think uh, most recently um, they are the upper age limit is 45 years. So there's um, hmm. uh, there's an age limit to uh, uh, being a donor. Um, and um, if you're thinking about how to become a donor for a, uh, you know an affected family member with an illness or something, you know that obviously you should you know volunteer and they would uh, contact you. But let's hope that's not the case. Well, that's great. I had no idea that there were age restrictions on donations. Uh, yes, on uh, younger. Yeah, like everything else in life, you know, the younger you are, the better you are. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, younger, younger donors are better donors. So, uh, NMDP, you know, it used to be up to 60 years, but uh, more recently they're cutting back on the age. I think it's up down to 45 now because, uh, especially for Caucasian individuals, because there's a lot of Caucasian donors on, so uh, they don't need any more. Uh, so they they just have to uh, replace the attrition rate. Hmm. Well, excellent. Well, thank you. We are. I know we've taken more time than we told you. So we are so grateful that you joined us today. We hope you keep thank going. You, <laughs> thank you. Strongly. All right. And All right. um, please. And we would love to support you in any way that we can. So thank, thank you. you for achieving such great success and all your dedication and hard work for myeloma patients. Thank you, Jennifer. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next Mpatient Radio interview as we learn about how we can help drive to a cure for myeloma. 